Trigger warning. High functioning directly deals with the realities of mental illness and mental health issues. As a result, some listeners may find this content triggering. We encourage listeners to tune in and out in a way that feels safe for them and seek support if they need. If you are in crisis, please call 911 or visit your nearest hospital. If you're in Canada, you can also call Crisis Services Canada at 1-833-456-4566 or text 741-741. This episode contains candid discussions of depression, anxiety, suicide, privilege, dissociation, ADHD, professional and personal support systems, medication, therapy, and the struggles we've had coping with mental illness. Hey, I'm Britt. And I'm Amira. And this is High Functioning, a podcast about people who struggle with mental illness while still maintaining seemingly productive and successful lives. Right, we're basically trying to be as millennial as possible by starting our own podcast, and after this we're actually going to go grab some avocado toast. Yeah, and we're not buying a house, to be clear. (laughs) Because of the avocado toast. (laughs) The reason we want to start this podcast is because our conversations often revolve around what it's like living our lives where we both struggle with mental illness, we both do the things that we need to do to cope with our mental illness whether that be medication therapy etc etc there's the list could go on and on but on the outside most people wouldn't necessarily look at us and think that we are quote-unquote sick or struggling or that anything is even wrong and we really wanted to explore that dichotomy of why we think that mental illness is immediately associated with someone who is low functioning and really obviously struggles Of course, there are so many people who aren't able to function in the way that we are uh, because of their mental illness. But at the same time, we need to consider all the different varieties of ways that mental health and mental illness may present itself. And that's what we're here to do. Tell our stories, share other people's stories, and just start talking about what it means to be high functioning. On that note, why don't we talk a little bit about what high functioning actually means to you and how you uh, identify as high functioning great question so high functioning to me is a weird term because in many ways I identify with it because what it blatantly means the definition of it are you high functioning and if you look at uh, background here is that I studied psychology and in psychology you learn about the DSM which is essentially the holy grail of what they believe is every single mental illness mental health issue psychological issue in the world Uh, mind you it wasn't too long ago that uh, conversion therapy was a suggested solution in the DSM uh, for individuals who are LGBTQ plus So I wouldn't necessarily call it the Holy Grail. Uh, Nonetheless, it has informed a lot of the way that we think about mental illness today. And one of the things that it says is that if you are truly to have a mental illness and a diagnosis, it means that it the mental illness impedes with your functioning uh, for over two weeks. But what is functioning when you when you talk to doctors, they say, you know, your work life, your social life, all those facets Um, that are impossible to balance for anyone, let alone someone struggling. And if you don't necessarily check off those boxes, you know, if you have a full-time job, if you go to school and get good grades, and if you have friends, then immediately it feels like you're not going to get 
the diagnoses or that there's no way you can get that. And to me, I really struggled with that because I could check off all those boxes. I could definitely say that I had a thriving social life and that I did really well in school and still do. Uh, and all those other things that people would consider, you know, successful. There's no way you can be sick. But then what boxes uh, didn't exist for me that I wish they did was do you come home and yell at your family to the point of, you know, your eyes hurting, your skin hurting, everything about you feels wrong and like you shouldn't belong. And, you know, all those other things that are used to describe mental illness, but those boxes weren't there for me to check off. And that made it really hard to address my mental health for a really long time and I'm sure we'll talk about that more and more but to me now embracing high functioning means recognizing that the boxes that I need may not exist yet in the healthcare system but that doesn't mean that I don't struggle it doesn't mean that I can't coexist with all those different facets of me and uh, it doesn't mean that my struggles aren't legit because they are and they totally suck and when they happen they suck but that doesn't mean that the next day I won't wake up and still want to hang out with my friends it just means that the day before I couldn't get out of bed all day and the day after I get an A on a test I don't know that's just my life and I wish there was a box for that but there isn't and so maybe we'll create that box by chatting about it but yeah Miro what does high functioning mean to you yeah, uh, I think you covered everything, a lot. <laughs> everything. <laughs> literally everything um, I'm just here to be your yes man but uh in terms of high function, I think there's a large question around validity of your struggles and of your mental illness or mental health state because you are still high functioning. And so one of the things I had struggled with a lot was while in an extremely dark place, um, being suicidal, dealing with really deep depression, no one really took my struggle seriously because I was still high functioning. So questions I got from doctors were around how have your grades suffered or are you still able to go to class? And my answer was always, well, yeah, I've still got great grades. I still go to class. And that sort of, uh, it closed some doors for treatment and recovery because I wasn't sick enough. You have to be sick enough or you have to be bad enough to get the help you deserve. And so being high functioning really kind of worked against me. And it was a, it, it's a tough thing to be navigating because you want to continue living your life and you want to continue being high functioning because you got to do your day to day. You got to get on with normal life. Uh, but you can't because if you do that, then your struggles are not seen as real. And I think a, a big question that came up for me was, um, do I have the right to consider myself sick if I can still do all these things, knowing that so many people can't? Like, is their diagnosis more legitimate? Is it more valid than mine? And sort of struggling with having to be my own best advocate for what I need without feeling like I can actually do that with how high function I am. I think what's really interesting, too, is looking at how during the peak of some of our biggest struggles, uh, what high functioning meant. So for you, it meant doctors not necessarily taking you seriously. For me, it meant a social environment that didn't even feel like I could talk to a doctor Either way, they're both totally debilitating and stop you from getting the help you need. But it's just interesting how it extends through so many different facets of maintaining this perfection. And maybe if I was sicker, a doctor would take me seriously. Or maybe if I was sicker, my mom would take me seriously. Or my friends would take me seriously. Or my teachers would take me seriously. But then if I was sicker, 
the ball would just, you know, the snowball would just keep rolling and rolling and rolling because if you have the coping strategies to let them go in some way just to get help that you need, I mean, that's just a whole ball of messiness. And it's not, it's interesting that we both felt that way, that we both got to places where we were like, well, maybe we should just be sicker. Maybe we should just show that we're sicker and you know I don't think that would have necessarily helped either of us in the grand scheme of things right yeah we've both had very similar experiences as you said and it kind of reminds me of when we first met and by looking at each other and just by talking to each other we sort of thought well I at least thought you completely had your shit together Mm -hmm. you may have had a different opinion on me and I'll let you speak to that but uh you know I never would have guessed the extent to to what you were dealing with because you were high functioning and you are high functioning and you get things done and you're extremely successful and I think I even had that that own sort of misconception in my head that if someone is that you know put together smart funny successful they wouldn't be (laughs) yeah I'm never doing this again don't record this part somebody (laughs) cut this out I don't know how to edit but somebody (laughs) cut this out um I have the editing power so (laughs) okay so I guess this is staying yeah (laughs) but yeah I think uh the interesting thing about when we met is that I was shitting bricks are we gonna swear on this podcast I mean I already did so so. fair you have the editing power you decided (laughs) (laughs) um I remember that first day and I'd already been at this internship for a month and I didn't want to meet new people because at that point my social anxiety was actually higher And even though I walk in and I, you know, hold my head up and come in with my coffee late and pretend I own the place inside, it's just not so much a cover, but it's just the way that I know that uh, I will be seen as powerful and I don't have to kind of ask for that power if I demand it in that way. And then if I demand it, I can control how the rest of the interactions go. And I don't know if that's super productive or right, but that's what's always felt like that's what it's always felt like in my brain that if I can put on a persona that people have a box for then I can very much control every other interaction and having that control and it it really relieves a lot of my social anxiety so on that note how how much of your ability to be high functioning is dictated by your need to control something all of it (laughs) (laughs) okay no we do it yeah yeah yeah. I I think that's a great thing to ask actually I would say that yeah literally all of it I think my need to control my compulsive need to control uh because of my anxiety it makes sure that I control my grades and what I look like and how I walk through this world and I have to put out there as well I think it's important to notice our privileges um I'm a white cis straight woman uh, I would like to say conventionally attractive. Um, Are you fishing? You're just <laughs> fishing now. Yeah, no. everyone. Brit's super hot. Okay, all right. <laughs> but because of that, I fit this persona based on my looks already. So knowing that I can just control my actions, my words, my stories to fit that, you know, quote unquote, basic bitch profile. And that's literally what you guys called me during that internship is that yeah. I was basic Brit. And you I, still are basically. I, I still am. I still am. But in that way, I think that like, yeah, controlling that it, it comes from my anxieties. And it's just interesting. What, what do you think about that? Yeah, I agree. It's completely driven by a need to control to the point that I would almost be. I don't know how to put this correctly, but I would almost be envious of people who could 
take days and be more low functioning because Mm. I didn't have that choice or I felt like I didn't have that choice. I had to be high functioning and there was no other option. There was no, I'm taking a mental health day or I'm saying no to something. I'm setting boundaries. It was, if I don't do all of these things and then more, things are just going to get even worse. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be interesting in future episodes uh, to explore how that's changed for us, uh, what it looked like taking a low-functioning day in the past, i.e. not taking life, kind of forcing you to take a low-functioning day, and what it looks like now, uh, where life still does force us to take low-functioning days, but where we've learned and are a little bit more aware. Uh, But coming back to the present, I think it would be really cool to learn a little bit about our stories. So, Amira, what brought you to this table in the Toronto Public Library right now, (laughs) podcasting with me? It all started on a wonderful day in June when I was born. No. Um, I was born in June, too. This is true. June babies. Are you a Gemini as well? No, I'm a Cancer. You know what? We don't believe in that (laughs) stuff. So, let's move on. Uh, I'm gay. I have to believe in that kind of stuff. Uh, I started dealing with mental health issues long before I even knew how to label them. I was probably 11 or 12 when I first started dealing with a bit of depression, but I didn't really know what it was. And over time, there was just so many other struggles that that came with. Um, I have a lot of different parts of my identity that make things complicated. I grew up uh, as a Muslim in a post 9-11 world. I'm queer. I'm sort of I've sort of like kind of been on the fringe of a lot of different groups not really feeling like I could fit in so that made it a lot harder to uh, come to terms with who I was and um, when I was in high school struggling with my sexual identity and sexual orientation I just started to question everything and that sort of created a lot of feelings of isolation and loneliness which is really kind of the perfect breeding ground for uh, depression so I went through really deep depression I also I didn't have the ability to deal with that so I was extremely high functioning no one knew what I was going through and what ended up happening is all of that psychological stress and trauma started to manifest itself physically and I was diagnosed with what's called conversion disorder which is essentially my body expressing uh, mental stress as physical symptoms so I'd literally have at least one seizure a day when I was 18 for over a year, uh, I still deal with them, but they're just like far less frequent. And that's all related to um, my psychological state and how I'm feeling and being able to label what I'm feeling and label what I'm going through uh, has always been a struggle. Uh, to add to that, like I also deal with ADHD. And so it's a it's actually very, very common for women, especially because it is underdiagnosed in women. Uh, for women especially to deal with anxiety and depression as a result of ADHD. Uh, the symptoms manifest themselves differently. So women are more likely to be quiet and reserved and less likely to uh, connect with that hyperactive element, which is sort of the stereotype of ADHD. And that's because boys will generally exhibit those symptoms more. And early studies on ADD were, were just done on boys. So that's your little science lesson for the day from someone who didn't actually study (laughs) psychology (laughs) like you did um but uh what's uh what's your story Britt um my story is a little different I also want to note there too of 
when we were talking a bit earlier of uh, when you first saw me in the internship and kind of questioning, you know, the validity of my experiences, um, because we were a lot less aware of these kinds of things at the time. And also, I mean, it's really hard to break your own understanding of mental illness and stigma and blah, blah, blah. We can talk about that forever and ever. And we have. Um, and that we will. And we will. But when I first learned of Amira's story, um, I also had that same feeling, but on the other end, where I was like, well, she's sick, but I'm not. And how dare I compare myself to her? How dare I put myself in the same bracket as her? You know, um, even knowing that she was high functioning, even knowing that on a day to day basis, I'd have no idea what she was dealing with. Uh, when she told her story, immediately you go into this comparison mode of, well, I'm not as bad or you're worse, or how can I take up space? Well, how can I not take up space? And generally, I the mantra I, I try and tell myself is, you know, someone can break their arm and cry for days and someone can break their arm and kind of laugh it off. Either way, you need a cast. And I think that's really important is that we all react to things differently. Our All our and that and that was what I told myself before I realized that I did have legitimate symptoms and could validate my own mental illness. But um, if you're not in that place yet or if you struggle and go day, some days you're not in that place, which definitely happens to me, just understanding that ev- everyone is so different. That's the basis of it is everyone is so different. Yeah, it manifests itself differently. They deal with it differently. You know, you're saying that um, – you would see me and be like, oh, her struggles are so valid and she's definitely sick. Whereas I would look at you and be like, Brit has these struggles but can deal with it so much better than I can, so I must be doing something wrong. And we're both both kind of going back and forth, looking at each other, being like, oh, her struggle is more valid or less valid or she's better at dealing with this than I am. When mm-hmm. really it's just they're completely different. It's apples and oranges. And the interesting thing, too, is when I when I would think that it would be like, well, her struggle is more legit so she can get help. But meanwhile, she wasn't Amira wasn't getting great help. And the help that no. she was getting was filled with bias and stigma and questions like, how are your grades doing? And, you know, also the intersectionality of religion and sexual orientation and all that. And I'm here thinking, oh, well, she's got it all figured out because she can cry for help and I can't. And that was just such a false, false thought. And so it's interesting uh, looking at that and thinking back to my story and now how I look at it and recognize that my story is legit um, and valid. And I can I do a lot of therapy and a big part what we both do. But a big part of my therapy has been learning to deal with childhood trauma. And the way you do that is by going into your 12 year old brain which I majorly dislike. Um, I still have like a 12-year-old brain, so it's (laughs) not that. (laughs) Have you done chair work with your 12-year-old brain? Oh my God, chair work is the worst. If any of you ever have the chance to do chair work, don't. I mean, it changes your life, (laughs) but it's so hard. You sit across from an empty chair and like put everyone in that chair, um, including your 12-year-old self, and you talk to it and... Uh, at first, even my therapist says she's so proud of me because at first I was like laughing and then not doing it, not looking up, like all these things wouldn't even move from my chair. And then by the end, I was like, 12 year old Brit, I got you. I got you. I know how much you struggle. I know why I am the way I am because of your struggles and how you were taught to deal with them. And I want to put my arm around you and say, you know, it's going to be okay. And one day you're going to sit at a table in the Toronto Public Library talking about this. I mean, I would have never predicted this. I, I didn't even want to call it anxiety for the longest time. Yeah. 
Um, but my anxiety symptoms definitely started really young. I mean, anxiety and depression actually run in my family. I found out not too long ago that when my grandfather immigrated here um, as a refugee from the USSR, um, there was a period of time where he actually was put on antidepressants. But we don't really talk about it. My grandparents are Holocaust survivors. And so the idea of exploring emotions is very feels very wrong to them. It feels very weak. And at the time, yeah, if you're in trauma for four years straight, more than af- after the war, the poverty, you're not going to think that you you just don't have the ability to consider emotions and feelings and all that. So growing up, I was told emotions were a weakness. Uh, I was literally told, Britt, you're going to be so successful if you can just learn to handle your emotions. So you can imagine when trauma happened in my immediate family, how I learned to deal with that, which was smile through it, laugh, keep it all in. And so my anxiety, which I first exhibited when I was a kid, like little things like I always, always had to say I love you before bed to my family. And like there was a way that I needed my bed to look just just little things that maybe were a bit more than your average kid would do. Um, when that got, when the trauma hit, that anxiety plus the not allowing to feel emotions plus trauma created a whole mess, um, of numbness. And for a very long time, I just didn't feel anything. And then when I started to feel, oh man, it sucked. It was awful. Um, I was, couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't go to my dance classes. I could somehow get my way to school and like function during the day. But by the time I got home, I would run away to the park for an evening. I would yell at all my family members. I was just, I was awful. Um, Now I can look back and say that I was in a major depressive episode. Um, I thought about death a lot. I thought the only reason I was put on this earth was to make sure my sister and my family were okay. I didn't see myself as an existing human. And then the anxiety set in once I got to university. I felt like everyone was staring at me when I was on the bus. it was just interesting because I say all these things and then the person that was experiencing all these things, like I'm sure you were as well, was put together, organized, scholarship winner, straight A student, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, and kind of the first time I decided or not decided, I was forced to address that um, these worlds coexist. I mean, it wasn't a first time. It was over time that you realize that if you're not going to let the worlds coexist, one's going to take over and it's not going to be the one that you want. Um, It's going to be the one that's going to make you feel like you don't deserve to be here or that, you know, you're lazy and you're not productive and your life is not going to amount to anything. And yeah, that really, those are not fun thoughts at all. So yeah, there's like this grand irony of in, in your attempt to control as much as possible, you have to relinquish that control that much sooner Mm -hmm. when that other part sort of starts to take hold and scream for attention that it so desperately needs and and deserves. Um, Trauma is also, it's intergenerational, right? So your trauma isn't just a culmination of your 20-some years of experience. It's also something that's passed down. So, yeah, you you weren't in the Holocaust, but the fact that your family was and had to deal with that significant trauma translates down and it's how you're raised and uh, when I started learning about trauma I decided to read a bunch of books about it because Mm. that's what I do I I use knowledge as a way to shield myself and defend myself from the unknown so there's a great book about childhood uh, emotional neglect by Janice Webb and one of it one of the chapters talks about types of parents and how that can create 
uh, trauma in children. And it's basically one of the categories of parents is parents that are doing the best they can, but they were neglected themselves. And so that's where that intergenerational piece comes through of your parents are doing the best they can with the resources they were given because they weren't necessarily given what they need because their parents couldn't provide it because they went through trauma or their parents couldn't provide it. And it just sort of continues on. And to, to go to therapy and deal with these things, it's basically like you're breaking these cycles so that when there's, you know, a little Brit junior and Amira junior, Oh God. (laughs) uh, They're, they're going to have a different way of, dealing with things because we sat in that chair and did that chair work and I think on that note too uh just moving into a slightly different thought is that even though Brit Jr. and Amira Jr. will hopefully have a more balanced not balanced there's a word for it that I can't can't pinpoint but we'll we'll reap the benefits of the work that Brittany senior and Amira senior did. Senior. Uh, I wouldn't, I would also say that uh, the work that we've done doesn't mean we're recovered. Absolutely not. No. And I think it's an interesting point in our lives right now where we can talk about this a lot more freely and we want to get like really real with people too. I want to try and, you know, even if we're having bad days to keep talking uh, and keep recording. And this is also not going to be our de facto therapy session. Yeah, I mean, not we, at all. we pay people to do that. Definitely. Um, so this isn't one of those platforms where you're just going to hear us sob for however long it takes to record this. No. That being said, my goal by the end of this is to make Brit cry once. So I will be oh. taking bets on what <laughs> episode it happens in. Uh, and it's Price is Right rules, so over-under applies. Uh, so, yeah, hit us up with your bets, and and we'll let you know who's right. Or you'll just have to listen through I, all I'm not sure. 197 episodes. We've just come up with that number right now, but I think that's a good goal to work towards. Yeah. 100, we definitely have enough issues to fill 197 episodes of content. Absolutely. But I think that it'll be interesting to see how we move forward if that comfort develops I, I mean between us we definitely have it we've cried in front of each other which is huge like absolutely like I don't cry in front of anyone so going to therapy and learning how to cry that we've literally done that we've both gone to therapy to learn how to cry which is apparently like a natural thing that happens but like yeah, not, no. for us. <laughs> not for us so not when you've been conditioned for so many years to not feel and not cry exactly. and not show emotion and not be weak yeah um, when now we know that crying is actually a sign of strength. And if you cry, that's has nothing to do with how weak or how strong. Yeah. It is. And it can feel good, but sometimes it's really hard to get yourself to cry. Well, not yeah. get yourself, but even sometimes it's really hard to just have the appropriate reaction to something when you've been, when you've taught yourself how to control your reactions to everything. And so sometimes when I need to cry and I feel it and I feel it in like my throat and behind my eyes and everything, it just doesn't come out. Like I just don't have that natural knee jerk reaction. But then sometimes if what I'm learning now is that I can cry better when I'm around trusted people, which I never thought before. Like something about crying by myself still feels very unsafe and weird and uncomfortable. But when I'm around people I really trust and that circle is small but mighty so mighty and I'm so grateful that I've been able to develop that with the help of therapy of course it's like whoa there are tears and there are emotions and there are people who are taking me seriously who care about me and oh wow that's a whole maybe then I'll cry when I talk about how grateful I am 
and the work I, I've had to put in, both of us have had to put in to develop these friendships that give us the ability to start breaking down those emotional barriers. Um, but on that note, too, of recovery is that, like, we're nowhere near. Like, we're not... I, I don't know that recovery is, like, being recovered yeah. is necessarily, like, a point that we reach. I think it's more of just an evolution and a process of different iterations of mm-hmm. getting slightly better or slightly worse and having good days and bad days. I think when I thought that there was this magical point of recovery, like, on this certain date in the future, I would be recovered, uh, it really kind of hindered progress. Yeah. Because... Everything, every time I would struggle more or need to take some time to take care of myself, it felt like a step backwards. It felt like failure. It felt like failure. And recovery is not linear. Progress isn't linear. And so there's a lot of these ups and downs. And to sort of feel like every time you need to take a step back, you're failing, makes it that much harder to get out of it. Mm -hmm. As opposed to saying, if I look overall at an aggregate of progress I've made or you've made over the past you know, five years, yeah, there's clearly some some things that have moved in the right direction, but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be days where it kind of feels like it's moving a little bit backwards. Yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting, too, as part of our – I just want to maybe scrap the word recovery altogether. Yeah, recovery's out. Recovery's canceled. Recovery is canceled. Uh, it's we're just big about... part of cancel culture. Yeah. <laughs> Which is also so super basic. problematic. <laughs> cancel culture is very problematic, but that's for – episode 193 93 well 193 we'll keep that in mind uh but i think yeah recovery is weird and it doesn't really encompass the experiences we have at all um our our recovery quote-unquote is like second based minute based like day based i don't know it's all about like amir said like those moments that you have that are sometimes up and sometimes down and i think a really cool thing about where we're at in our journey in our life's journey, not even our mental illness journey, because our life is all of those facets. Uh, where we're at right now is that when we experience like really shitty weeks um, or days or moments, we're like really proud of ourselves for the way we handle it. So we have, I, I mean, I'm speaking on behalf of both of us. I'm pretty sure we both feel this way because of the way that we message each other during those times. But we'll have total like tantrums and, and just like completely break down uh, in private, of course, because I don't think we're at a place where we can do that in front of other people. That's really super icky. Yeah. But let's say we have a breakdown. I mean, in front of other people we don't trust is the aside. Aside. Yeah. Like not at work. Like that's really scary. Though I did cry at work once and it scared me a lot. It actually didn't go that badly um, because I guess emotions aren't bad. But like if I wanted to cry at work, one of my coworkers knew that I would get upset and she would just leave her car keys on the desk and I would just grab and run to the car, have a quick little breakdown. And then run back into the office and pretend like nothing had happened. That's a beautiful friend right there. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, that yeah, is we just like absolutely amazing. We like her. I mean, the whole running away and pretending nothing happened, maybe not the best. It was pre-therapy, so. Yeah, that's maybe episode like 87. <laughs> uh, but it's interesting because we'll have these nights, at least I will, where I'm like bawling my eyes out. Like something has really upset me and I'm handling it in the way that, you know, people handle it where they cry. And yet, even though I'm so sad, I'm also, like, really proud of myself for crying. I'm like, whoa, good for me. I'm handling this the way I'm supposed to. I'm coping the way I'm supposed to, quote, unquote, what is supposed to. I'm coping in a way that feels healthy to me. Mm. I am talking to the people I need to talk to. I'm not taking up too much space or too little space. I'm doing what feels good. And even though it feels 
life feels shitty in that moment, there's like a little voice in me that's like, go Brit. And I think that's, that's really cool. And so that's not recovery. That's like coping, not even coping. Coping is such a, I find coping to be a bit negative. Like, I think it's just life. Like that's what life looks like for me right now. And I'm learning to embrace it and be proud of myself when it feels good and be proud of myself when it feels bad. That's hard, but it's all this mishmash of whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Also, this is a total aside because hi ADD. Um, but I want to say that while we're talking, I'm trying to make a conscious effort to not interrupt Brit because that's generally what I always do. So instead I'm just emphatically nodding at everything she says, but you can't see me doing that. So everything Brit is saying is super legit and I'm super on board with it. I'm just trying to stay quiet and respectful. We really dove into this podcast and the whole podcasting persona, which is the emphatic nodding, because I think that if you do a lot of Mm-hmm's during, it gets so annoying. It gets really annoying. Oh, I just cut you off. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think we've talked a lot, and I'm actually curious, Samira, what this podcast means to you, and what you're kind of hoping for it. You know, if a year from now um, we're back in this room, or maybe not, or whatever it is that happens, we're not doing this anymore. Like, what would be the letter you would want to write to yourself to read a year from now about this thing that we're taking on? Yeah, I love that question. I'm sort of treating this a bit like a time capsule where I'm hoping we continue this on for a significant length of time. And when we come back, I want to sort of compare uh, where where we were today and where we are then. So I think we should bring this question back when when we do this a year from now and compare our answers. But really, I think the goal that I want people to understand is a concept I think a lot about and it's how our society equates health with productivity which basically means that if you are less healthy and more sick you are less productive and if you are more healthy and less sick you are more productive and that presents an interesting challenge when you are high functioning because it takes away the validity of your struggles and what you're dealing with your ability to reach out for help and then once you do reach out your ability to to actually have your struggles heard. So I'm hoping that we can sort of educate folks on what high functioning is and how we can lead these successful, productive lives while still struggling and maybe show people that their struggles are valid and legitimate as well, regardless of their levels of productivity and what their output into society is. I think that would be the biggest takeaway Um, for us and also just a chance to share our stories and show that so many times when you look at the stock images of people with depression and anxiety it's some girl sitting in a dark hallway and I kind of want to challenge that and show that we're we can be happy and sad all at the same time and be able to be super productive like killing it at work but also haven't done laundry in three weeks or a month or whatever it is Uh, There's really not a specific archetype of how we have to look and how we have to act and how we have to experience our mental illnesses or our mental health issues. It's just such a unique experience. And to be able to share that with others and relate to others um, and just chat more with you, but with an audience. An audience that we don't see, but hope we're listening. I'm hoping there's an audience. It'll literally just be like my mom. A couple of our friends. Maybe my sister But they'll, too. they'll really love it. <laughs> yeah. I think they'll really love it. We have good friends. 100%. So. I, Mom, if you're listening, I expect a text with at least 17 emojis. <laughs> <laughs>
mom, if you're listening, this isn't your fault. <laughs> Mental yes. illness is normal. We're all struggling, but learning together. Yes. We love you. You've done nothing wrong. Most of the time. Correct. We're all trying our best. A for effort. Uh, on that note, um, the letter I would kind of write to myself for a year from now is pretty similar to that. I also think that I kind of want this podcast, again, not to be a therapist, but maybe a bit of a diary. It's interesting to get to the points that we've gotten into in our lives. And I think being in your 20s is just such a weird time anyways, that to document it from a point of view of mental health is really interesting and will be really interesting to listen back to. I also think this is a really interesting personal step as we embark on things that are kind of just passion projects like doing it not for any particular reward per se but just because it's fun and sometimes not fun but it's real and it's interesting and yeah I guess it's a weird space to be in in podcasting because I think everyone's doing one and you want to stand out and you want to be famous I don't know I'd love to be famous one day but not in a like I can't sit in a restaurant kind of way just in a occasionally someone tells me that they heard something I said and really loved it that would be great. Oh my God, Bert, I heard something you said and I really loved it. Okay, thank you. But you know, you know what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Uh, that would be so cool. But at the same time, even if that doesn't happen, just sitting here among this equipment and realizing that, you know, we were scrappy and we figured it out and we're actually taping this and it might actually sound good and someone might listen to it who we don't know. Like, that's just like the coolest thing ever. And it's just, it's a step in a direction of continuing to build the lives that we want to live um, and acknowledging that these lives are going to be complicated and messy and weird and great and awful all at the same time. And whether you have a diagnosable mental illness or not, like life is just a big clusterfuck of things. Um, we happen to have diagnosable mental illnesses and that's part of our clusterfuck. We also fuck. had the privilege to be diagnosed. So exactly. I, like, we, there are a lot of folks that have diagnosable mental illnesses but don't have access to the resources to even get that diagnosis a hundred percent so uh, i i retract and i'm yeah we we have mental illnesses many people do that's part of our clusterfuck that we're throwing into that and uh whatever your clusterfuck is like best of luck with it and i hope that listening to us talk about ours makes it feel a little bit more normal almost like celebratory to talk about your clusterfuck whatever it may be yeah like show a bit of that messiness because we all messiness, have so. exactly yeah. that's a real brené brown thought right there is it that should be an episode brené brown should be an episode mm. on her brené brown should be like an entire mini series uh, i take it back my letter to myself in a year is if brené brown listens to this i have achieved everything i need in life hashtag what would brené brown do is uh, generally how we live our lives it it really is so if anyone has connections please Please, please make us famous, but f not so famous that we can't sit in restaurants, but famous enough that Brene Brown listens to us. And tells us we have interesting things to say. Do, do with that call to action what you will. Exactly. And to close off, I think it's also important that we put out some disclaimers. Yep. One that uh, we are not therapists. No. We have gone to a lot of therapists. Yes. But we are not therapists. We're not here to fix anyone's problems. We're barely fixing our own. And we're not even. Our team of supports and professionals that we are very, very lucky and privileged to have are helping us fix our own shit. Um, so that's number one. Number two for me, my end is uh, I'm still learning. I really, really, really 
try and make a huge effort to be mindful of my language uh, and the way that I speak, the words that I use. But uh, I really am learning. So if anyone is listening to this and has any issues, um, please reach out and educate. I'm so open to it. And I, I hope to speak and create in a way that is inclusive to everyone. Yes, language is super important. Um, I want to be as mindful as possible, but there are only so many things that I know and there are a lot of things that I don't know. So we are both extremely open to hearing from you. Uh, we do not expect you to take on the emotional labor of explaining to us what we've done, but if you have the capacity, send us a couple links or just tell us what we should be Googling and what we should be researching. We are more than happy to do so. A big one for a big sort of disclaimer for me is these are our stories. They only relate to Brit and myself and they'll actually often contradict each other with our experiences. So this is by no means uh, a paintbrush that can be applied to any high functioning person. Um, We are not here to offer advice because of that. So if you come to us or, or you're wondering, hey, my friend is dealing with this, what should I do? We can tell you what we have done and what's worked for us, but we can't actually give you legitimate professional advice. So you can just listen and take stuff away. Take take what you want, leave what you don't. Yep. Leave us feedback. And also, I just realized uh, we've talked so much about the mental health part of it, but we actually haven't mentioned what makes us high functioning. You know, let's uh, mm. let's uh, roll off some resume bits, but in the most non assholey way all right this is where you can turn it off because we're gonna humble brag for yeah. a hot minute it'll probably take Britt like 25 minutes that's not true <laughs> <laughs> all right Britt, take it away all right uh so i graduated from the university of guelph um in psychology and neuroscience it was bomb i loved it there it was a good place to start to explore my mental health that doesn't mean every day was good obviously but made good friends generally a really good campus and um, learned a lot about activism there actually which was really unexpected and interesting I uh, just to throw in just to see I think it's important to throw in our highest accolades to really give the full picture but when I graduated I won the college medal for my extracurricular achievement um, and academic achievement and when I won that medal I was actually at a really low point which is really interesting Um, and actually probably pretty common I think for every big award I've won has had some sort of very low point, either right before, right after or during. Uh, That was definitely a low point. Not winning. Winning was great. But um, the transition back home, the transition uh, from a potentially destructive relationship, all of those things. Yeah. Rough time. But yeah, won that, uh, that, got a really cool fellowship called Venture for Canada, sets young grads up in startups, did that, worked at a startup for a couple years, uh, or a year and a half, sorry, and I worked on a sales team, um, decided I didn't like sales, uh, also an interesting time in my life. All times are interesting. Yeah, you're just an interesting person all around. Oh, well, thank you. But yeah, I went into uh, and decided that I really like computer science. I've always kind of had an inkling towards it, but uh, as a young woman, no one actually put me in that direction at all. And I had no idea what computer science was growing up. And I could go on and on and on about the gender and diversity issues in that field. But alas, uh, decided to quit my job, become a server and go back to school for computer science. And so that's what I'm doing right now. Uh, Currently, I'm doing research on autonomous 
wheelchairs and how they can help people with mobile disabilities. And when I say it out loud, it sounds co- so cool, but I have so much imposter syndrome. But It is so cool. <laughs> it is the coolest. I'm learning. I'm definitely learning. And it's been a really cool experience to do all that. Um, and it's weird to talk about it when I'm just been talking about mental health because I want to sprinkle in. Oh, and at this point I was like this and at this point. But right now we're humble bragging. And when I just look at my accomplishments, I'm really proud of myself and where I am in my life right now and my career and how it's growing and my interests and all that. Um, but yeah, the disclaimer is the sprinkles are everywhere. Trust me. Uh, but now on to Amira, who might I add this past year was flown out on a private plane to do a customer meeting. So she's going to say she has nothing to brag about, but, and if she wants me to edit this out, I will. But, um, also what she will say is right before she was freaking out because she gets a lot of anxiety when traveling, but that's not the important point right now. Cause we are humble bragging. The point is that you are a rock star. Yeah. I fly private. Of course I'm a rock star. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So I graduated from the university of British Columbia with a bachelor's of commerce specializing in transportation and logistics and organizational behavior human resources with a concentration in organizational consulting ow ow so about 20 percent of my degree was just learning how to say what my degree was during that time i received a couple of scholarships one of them was the lauren wilmot memorial scholarship uh, which was awarded to a student who is experiencing significant hardship but was still kind of killing it at school and involved in their communities just pause for a sec we could do a whole episode on scholarships <laughs> for students who are experiencing significant hardship but still need money but need to be really impressive in order to get that money oy vey what a mind fuck it's a lot it's a doozy it is anyway sorry to interrupt uh i also was named our school's top public speaker so now i just speak but clearly not publicly because there are two of us in this room and it is a very confined room. This is an extremely confined room. I'm loving it, though. Britt is very close to me right now. <laughs> We've been closer. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're uncomfortable with physical touch. Extremely uncomfortable. Anyways, continue. I now work at an extremely large Canadian company, and I've been moving through the ranks there. Uh, I started my career and was moving up very quickly, so most of my accomplishments are in terms of my career. In a future episode, Britt and I are actually going to discuss how we started talking about mental health and how we have these little advocate hats that we wear and what that means. So stay tuned for that with uh, a little bit more humble bragging on that as well as some interesting challenges that we face there. Mm-hmm. Is that the end of your humble brag? Now it's the end of my humble brag. Can I add something for you? Uh-oh. Okay. Um Five or six years ago, Amira started a blog called Surviving by Living. I did. I forgot about Surviving by Living. Uh, lots of people read it. She's been featured on The Mighty, which is so super cool. And uh, I think you should talk a little bit about that. Yeah. So Surviving by Living uh, was a blog started five years ago to tell the story of how mental illness didn't claim me. And it was a completely raw and unfiltered look at the realities of mental health and mental illness. So the rules I set out while writing for that blog was I would never edit a piece that I wrote. So if you read through it, you'll see a nice sprinkling of typos. And it's because I didn't want to compromise authenticity uh, in that platform whatsoever. And it led to a bunch of opportunities for me to be able to an advocate. It's actually how at some, like it basically led into how I met Brit. And that was a 
really interesting experience to run that blog because, again, there was an audience that could take or leave what they wanted, but they didn't necessarily have to uh, engage with all of my content, which made it a lot easier. Uh, some of the topics that were discussed are hard to digest, so people could sort of take a minute, think about it, and uh, interpret what they needed to from that. It's led to a bunch of really cool relationships. I've learned a lot about different people. So I think as much as people have said the blog has, has helped them or has been a great resource for them, I think it's actually been a lot more useful for me and I got a lot more out of it than I thought. The blog is sick and you're such a great writer and Stop. many people think so. Um, yeah, I think that kind of wraps it up for who we are. Um, if it wasn't clear, we did meet in the advocacy world and uh, we'll definitely talk a lot about that in the future. Some other episodes that we have in mind are, um, we actually have a sketchbook full of them, so I'll just uh, read some out. Does. She even has it color-coded. You gotta. You gotta keep things organized. I'm high-functioning, didn't you know? Yeah, whereas I forgot where we put the book. So. <laughs> uh, we want to talk about passion and what passion looks like, um, and not like romantic passion. Uh, as I said it aloud, I was like, oh, ew. Uh, but passion for like work and activities and hobbies um, when you're high-functioning, or at least in our experiences, what passion has looked like. Um, what getting out of bed in the mornings, what that's like, um, faking it when we, when we fake our emotions, our personalities, when we fake anything, um, again, romantically, no, that's not what we're talking about. Um, but maybe like on a date, I don't know, that will be another thing to explore. Yeah, or like when you hide what you actually deal with, like at what date do you say, Hey, I deal with all these things. <laughs> like, is that date three? Is that date nine? Is yeah. that after you're married? Like. Is that never like, yeah, just don't talk. About just it don't talk about never. it. Um, that's not advice. Please yeah, do not. We, listen we're to not us. here to give you advice. Uh, we want to talk about stigma. I guess dating. Will, oh, actually, the next page said love um, to yourself and partners. Um, so we will talk about that. Focusing experiences with medication and therapy, workspaces, your friends. I mean, the topics go on and on and on because our lives go on and on and on, hopefully. Uh, they have gone on sometimes for more than we'd want them to, which is uh, another topic that sounds really morbid, but it is and something to discuss because that's been a part of our lives as well. Uh, and yeah, I, I want to say thank you to my best friend over here who's embarking on this weird little thing with me and we'll see where it goes. And uh, thank you to the Toronto Public Library that has these six spaces. Thank you to our three future listeners. We love you. We love you a lot. Mom. Mom. My roommate Shelby. My sister Shaz. It's <laughs> <laughs> turning into an Oscar speech. Um, thank you so much for tuning in. Again, thank you to my host, co-host Brittany. She's amazing. She did all the planning for this, so uh, you can guarantee that it's going to be a very tightly run ship, and things are going to turn out great. We'll see you next episode, where we will be discussing a really cool topic related to high functioning. Yeah, see you then. put out our first episode this feels absolutely nuts I feel vulnerable and excited and really hope 
that whoever's listening got something from it, enjoyed it. Please share with your friends, share with your family, share with whoever. Subscribe, like, comment, give us feedback. We really want to see where this goes and that's not possible uh, without all of you. Everyone who's listening, everyone who supported us and we're just really pumped and we hope you are too. So thank you again and we can't wait to chat with you in our next episode.